and he must have a firm grasp of the unchanging message so that he can be counted on both for giving encouragement in sound doctrine and for refuting those who argue against it. WSFI 88.5 FM presents Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. I'm Angela Tomlinson, your host. On the line is also Marianne Harold from WQPH. Welcome, Marianne. Welcome, Angela. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. And so, for those of you who are not familiar with Kyle, Kyle, loyal to the Magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, has been involved in the curriculum, consultation, and formation of priests and laity relating to Catholic liberation and exorcism for over 15 years. A member of the Religious Association of Societas Matris Dolorissime, he, with Father Chad Ripperger, who is his superior, provide instruction, evaluation, case investigation, consultation and ongoing formation for bishops, exorcists, dioceses, and religious orders in the United States and abroad. So welcome, Kyle. Hello, Angela. Happy New Year. So, Kyle, it's the Feast of Holy Mary, Mother of God, today. Exactly. What a wonderful day. It's a beautiful day. And there's a little bit of an echo on the line, but let's continue. So, Kyle, today we're going to talk about the fact that it's not just New Year's and First Friday, but we want to talk about Mary, the Mother of God, and who she is. I think that we do well always and everywhere to think about who she is. She's unlike any other creature. And so I would like to spend a big part of today's program talking about just exactly who she is and the role she plays in salvation history. We are required as Catholics to have a relationship with the Blessed Mother. What do I mean by that? So central is our understanding of who she is to salvation history that the church fosters an understanding of exactly who she is and all of her many different roles. And the beginning of that understanding of who she is is simply the ascent that she is the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity. I think that oftentimes we um, go through all kinds of gyrations and contortions to try to accommodate other sensibilities and opinions that are inconsistent with this. And so reclamation theology is politically incorrect, meaning the truth is the truth. And sometimes it pricks and sometimes it abrades, but it is the truth nonetheless. So I think that this is one of the beginnings, this is one of the understandings that Catholics are different. We were, we are vastly different. It's not that we can agree to disagree. Our conscience will not allow you to remain in apostasy. And so this understanding of who the Blessed Mother is, is central to understanding who we are. Because if you miss who she is, then you miss who you are. What do I mean by that? Let's go back and figure who she is from a theological standpoint. 
All of sacred scripture is written on three levels or can be understood on three levels. The cosmic level, the world national level, and the individual level. And so as the sacred, as the author, the inspired authors of sacred scripture are writing, they're speaking on these three levels, consciously or non unconsciously, God is inspiring them through the Holy Spirit. And their words have this meaning. This is part of what makes the sacred scripture such a living and vibrant document centuries, millennia after it was written. So let's look at her from a cosmic standpoint. From a cosmic standpoint, she represents right ordered creation. What does that mean, right ordered creation? Creation becomes disordered through the sins of Adam and Eve. So you've heard Mary referred to as the new Eve. So let's, let's look and unpack that just a little bit. On this, the feast of the Theotokos, mother of God. And then let's take this to an apologetic application. So first of all, if Eve is the mother of all humanity, modernly theologians, especially lay theologians and those who are um, who would cast away much of the traditional writing on creation, uh, the, the cast away the midrash, discount the midrash of the Jewish rabbis, <clears throat> as well as other patriarchal commentary miss the understanding that all of humanity is descended from a single womb, and that is Eve. And so there's a practicality in understanding this. And so sacred scripture precedes science again, because science is man's understanding of God revealed in creation. Scripture is not necessarily understanding, but it's God's revelation of himself. And so let's go back and take the high ground with regard to apologetics, which is if someone wants to argue from a um, solo scriptura standpoint or from a, a primacy of sacred scripture, that's fine. That's wonderful. Let's go there. And so Eve engages in sin and, and sin enters the world. God in Genesis 3 and speaking to Adam and Eve is asking Eve, what is this thing you have done? So you notice the tangibility of sin and the and God's discourse with them, recognizing this thing, this tangible thing, this movement of the will contrary to God's holy will has a tangibility and that's sin. And that sin is not part of creation in as much as God did not create it. So there's an element introduced into creation that is not of God's will, and that is sin. What is this sin? Her sin begins with thought. We want to blame the serpent. But if you carefully look at this, it is that Eve entertains a thought that is contrary to God's holy will, his holy will having been said, do not eat of the tree. So she's considering the tree, she's in proximity to the tree, and the serpent <clears throat> gives word to her apostate thought, to her deviant thought, 
deviant meaning it's not in comportment with God's holy will, which would be obedience. Um, so without going deep into this, and there's a tremendous amount of theology here and understanding here that, that can be unpacked at a later date. The point being is that Eve engages in the first ecumenical theological dialogue, meaning she elevates an opinion or a thought contrary to God's holy will to the level of God's holy will. So she considers the serpent giving voice to her thought. She elevates both the serpent, symbolic as the lowest order, addressing the highest order. And the, who is she addressing? And who is addressing her is the creature, Lucifer. Lucifer's fall precedes human fall. And the reason I'm spending this time in, in this is to give us the understanding of exactly who Mary is. So Lucifer, arguably the greatest creature, the most magnificent creature, who was created to be the light bearer, his creation, his label use, what he was created for was to give glory to God by reflecting God's brilliance, the light, the uncreated light into creation, the light bearer to bring this awareness of God to, to turn everything toward the glory of God. So when he falls, when he says, I will not serve, he falls. He falls because this deviant thought, this deviant statement is not compatible with God's holy will. And so the Prince of Light becomes the Prince of Darkness. Eve echoes this, I will not serve, when she entertains the thought of eating the forbidden fruit. So we see that Eve's thought and psychology is compatible in this moment with the demon. This is going to be key for our understanding of sin. In order for us to engage in sin, in order for us to be sinful, <clears throat> there has to be a psychological compatibility with the diabolical, which is in opposition to God. I used the word there, diabolical. What does that mean, devil, diabolical? It means to divide. And specifically what it means to divide is to divide creature from creator. And so that's what the, the uh, effect, the consequence of sin is to divide us, to, to rupture relationship between creature and creator. So in this moment, when Eve's psychology is compatible with Lucifer's fallen psychology, they both militate, they, they turn ad hominem and away from God and toward each other and toward self. And so in this moment of conspiracy, they choose creature over creator and that's key because this is very, very simple, but very profound theology and a way for us to, quote, discern what is our motivation in any given moment. Oftentimes we misuse the word discernment and we say, I will just dis discern what is God's will. 
what's actually happening is people are wanting to submit uh, their will to God and have him ratify it or put his will stamp on it, if you will. And so that's essentially what Eve is doing is it's a misuse of reason. Now, the misuse of reason to justify one's own apostate actions or one's own action in opposition to, to unity and, and salvation, unity with creator, if you examine it in that light, then you realize that we give up the rational quality when we choose to militate in our own interest versus God's interest. Because in, in the right comportment of will, our interest is God's interest. God's interest is our interest. And so there's a total conformity of wills. Mary has this total conformity of will. And we'll see more and more as we develop who she is theologically and who she is uh, from a standpoint of creation and creature, perfected creature. We see, we'll see more of human capability, um, human potential, if you will. So Eve is psychologically compatible with Lucifer in saying, I will not serve, I will not obey. And so Lucifer, who has created the most magnificent, is cast to the lowest position, the prince of darkness, the pit, the absolute distance from God because of his rejection of God's holy will, because of his, and many people will say uh, pride uh, is, the, is the preceding sin. It's an, and it's an elevation of self beyond one's station. And so he who was closest to God sought to be God. And you, you'll hear the echo of this in uh, from St. Paul speaking about our Lord. Um, he was who, who was God, did not deem power something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself as a slave. And this is our Lord and his assumption of, of flesh, his, his condescension to man, his becoming flesh. So let's go back just to retreat just a moment to Lucifer. What precedes Lucifer's rejection of God is God's revelation to the angelic of the incarnation, that God would become man. And so Lucifer essentially says, I will not serve a God who will take a form lower or less than I. So the most magnificent creature is rejecting God's presence in the rest of creation. And, and he's saying, I will not serve a God who will take a form less than I. So at the end of the day, and this is essentially what Eve is saying, <coughs> is that I will not subject myself to God's holy will, to God's command, to God's uh, right order. And so at the end of the day, there's only one word difference between Lucifer's response to God and Mary's response to God. Mary responds to the angel, to God, by saying, be it done unto me according to thy word. 
Be it done unto me according to your word. Be it done unto me according to thy word, God. Lucifer says, be it done unto me according to my word. One word difference. We do well to examine our thoughts and our prayers, our desires, when we say, be it done according to my word, the way I say it should be done, the way I want it to be done. And so we see oftentimes this, this desire to re-engineer, to improve, to take something that someone else has done. Lucifer creates nothing. He creates nothing. He takes that which is already created and then reforms it or seeks to deform it, if you will, in his own image and in his own likeness and in his own desire. This is one of the hallmarks of Luciferian thought. We see it in, in presently in government. We see it in hierarchy of ecclesia. We see it where people depart the original mission. The original mission of all popes the primary mission of all popes is to defend the faith. It's the primary mission. To defend the faith and preserve the church. So we see this echoed even in ministries in the church. We see it echoed <clears throat> in groups and parishes. Wherever you, whenever you see an individual who is bent upon reinventing or re <laughs> the popular term now is rebranding, to rebrand, uh, to, to reconfigure, to make new, to improve, to do these things. This, this is not requisite with traditional Catholicism, this, which is to preserve that which the Lord gave us in the form he gave it. So where Lucifer finds psychological compatibility with many people is the desire to, <coughs> to re-engineer or to remake in their own likeness or in their own... Um, their own format, if you will, traditional Catholic practices. Mary is very clear in her response to God, be it done unto me according to thy word. And then she does not ask for specifics, for details. And salvation, salvation history and the future of all of humanity, even her own path, is revealed to her through others. She who is the spouse of the Holy Spirit, she who has the most intimate relationship with God the Father, she who has the most intimate relationship with the second person of the Trinity in giving birth to, the, to Jesus the Christ, she who is the spouse of the Holy Spirit, she who has the most intimate relationship with the triune God, allows God's plan to be revealed to her through others, <clears throat> through Joseph, through Simeon, through Anna, through Jesus himself. And so she doesn't have this laid out in front of her. And I think that that's one of the things that is indicative of the deep and abiding peace that is our Blessed Mother that is the mother of God, is the understanding that no matter what happens, no matter how it happens, it's providential. Providential meaning, <clears throat> at the end, God has 
not only the final say, he has the first say. The triune God is present in all of creation to the extent that the creature allows it. Now, this is a very important concept that we miss. Oftentimes, we skip over. And if we're going to imitate Mary, if we, if we want to lead a life of inner peace, we must rem- remember that Mary's exterior life was anything but peaceful, meaning the exterior circumstances. She was in a life of tumult, uh, constantly being moved. Um, the death of Joseph, the death of, um, of the Christ, all of these things militated um, against what we would consider normal and stable familial relationship. Even her own um, history um, pre-Gabriel. So let's go back and pick up just a little bit of that under the who is she. If we limit our knowledge of Mary to sacred scripture, we limit, we greatly limit our understanding of who she is. Tradition has venerated her uh, within the church and much, much, much is known about her. So let's pick up some, some just some moments that uh, are preserved in, in traditional Catholicism that are absent from scripture. And I would propose to you that many of these elements are absent from Scripture because at the time the Gospels were being written, she was a very, very vibrant force. Um, everyone knew her. If I say, if I were to simply refer to um, someone as the wife of the president, then the um, your memory supplies a whole catalog of who that might be, whether that's the current first lady, the previous first lady, any previous first ladies, then your mind uh, immediately fills in <clears throat> this vast uh, amount of information. So when the gospel writer would mention the mother of God or, or the mother of Jesus, then he's, he is supposing, he's assuming you're bringing a lot of information to the table. And so what we see is that what was written in sacred scripture becomes fleshed out over the centuries through doctrine and dogma. And so, <clears throat> for instance, when the sacred scripture speaks about um, God condescends to man and becomes the word becomes flesh and lives among us that there is a whole theology of doctrine and dogma that develops around these statements to understand the hypostatic union to understand Jesus is true God and true man to refute all of the heresies and so the four primary Marian dogmas do the same with regard to the Blessed Mother. And while they have a scriptural root, they have a scriptural basis, the depth of understanding is so much more. Who Jesus is, who he was, what he did, what he continues to do, is founded in scripture, but is expounded in doctrine and dogma. And and likewise with the Blessed Mother. So the, the, today's feast, the Theotokos, Mother of God, does several things, but it is the first definitive 
Marian dogma to be declared that she is the mother of God. We see this theme repeated. This is not something new that, that a pope made up or that some theologian said, oh, by the way, she's the mother of God. Everything points to this incontrovertible truth, this, this dogma, this absolute truth. And so when we engage in apologetics with our Protestant friends or others, this understanding of who Mary is is central. If you do not believe that she is the mother of God, then who is Jesus? Who is he? This is, this is the very central thing. This is the definitive moment in all of salvation history. It is the definitive moment in the cosmos. It is the definitive moment around which all of humanity and the history of humanity is centered, and that is the incarnation. So let's talk about that for a moment. And I would propose to you and suggest to you that this and this alone be your New Year's resolution, that at least once a day, preferably three times a day, but at least once a day, intone the Angelus. This was traditional Catholicism for centuries, that at six noon and six, bell would ring in the church and whatever anyone was doing in the field, in the factory, in the farm, whatever they were doing, the world stops at six noon and six. The world stops and acknowledges Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the caropactomist. <clears throat> if we will do this as Catholics, we will change the world. Weather is a wreck, politics are a wreck, our lives are wrecks because we do not pray. We do not pray as we should, which is to acknowledge very simply that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're always caught up in the, in the second coming of Christ. <clears throat> when will he come again? I saw him this morning. It was in the mass. He came when the priest in the epiclesis called the Holy Spirit into the bread and wine. And they became the body and blood of our Lord. So he's the second coming. He's constantly coming. He's constantly here. Have we prepared him room? The Blessed Mother, see in, the, in the, the bread and wine, see the Blessed Mother's flesh, which becomes quickened by the Holy Spirit in her womb into his flesh. We'll go back and pick that up for just a moment. The Angelus is the acknowledgement. It is the prayer salutation of the church which acknowledged its Lord and Savior three times a day. And it acknowledged the Blessed Mother. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived by the Holy Spirit. It is that moment that is the definitive moment for every human, for all humans, for all humanity, for all history, for all time. You either believe that that happened, or you don't. You either believe that Gabriel came to her at the well in Nazareth 
His shadow fell across her, and he said, Hail, full of grace. Hail you who through, through whom all grace will come. Imagine the vulnerability of God who asked a creature to let him in. To let him in. And so ready is she that she says, let it be done. She hears the truth and so believes it that it becomes Christ within her. This is the second annunciation. If you want to, if you want to um, define annunciation as an angelic being giving salutation to a human, then the first one happened in the garden when the fallen angelic being Lucifer in the form of a serpent says to Eve, what did God tell you? She believes the lie and it becomes sin within her. Mary believes the truth and it becomes Christ within her. So in this moment in the Angelus, the angel of the Lord declared unto Mary and she conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then we follow that declaration with a Hail Mary full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God. There it is. Holy Mary. Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. So this speaks, this first Marian dogma speaks right out of the Hail Mary, second line, first part of that salutation. Holy Mary, Mother of God. This speaks to who she is and it speaks to who Christ is. He is God. This is the departure for apologetics because many people struggle with this and they will say things like, well, he is the son of God. But they do not understand in the Catholic profundity of exactly who he is. If you understand that he is the second person of the Trinity, he is the second person of the triune God. He is the epitome, the embodiment, the flesh appearing which is hope, the second theological virtue, where the unseen God becomes seen, the unseen God becomes manifest, becomes tangible in the flesh of Jesus Christ. That's who he is. Where did this flesh come from? It came from the Blessed Mother. It came from Mary. That's where it came from. For it was in her womb that flesh was knit upon his divine soul. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the fruit of her womb. That's who she is. That's who she is. That's who she is. Second salutation within the Angelus. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to thy word. So you've got the one-two punch. One is the angel coming to Mary. 
hail full of grace. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, she conceived by the Holy Spirit. The second one is her fiat, be it done unto me according to thy word. So in this moment, the lowest creature is elevated to the heights. Lucifer would argue that he is uh, set up as opposite to comparable or on a par with the Christ. Not so. Lucifer's creature. The creature that God elevates or allows elevation, the opportunity to elevate, and she's elevated through her docility and her obedience. She's elevated through that single statement, be it done unto me according to thy word. Because that is the, the inverse of Lucifer's apostate statement, be it done unto me according to my word. So she who is the lowest is elevated to the heights. <clears throat> she now occupies this place that reflects God's, God's glory to all creatures. And in this moment, she becomes queen of angels, queen of the universe. She becomes the queen mother, mother to us all the mother of all creation in this moment. So that which Eve cast away is given to Mary. And she does, she gives her cat, uh, her fiat, she, she gives her response to God, not in anticipation of reward. It's out of love. It's the purity of love. It is that purity of love that St. Alphonsus Liguori quotes in the Stations of the Cross when he says, love me and then do with me what you will. That's precisely what she's saying. <clears throat> and caught up in this is a very interesting reflective point for, us, for ourselves. Are we doing what we are doing for a perceived reward or affirmation, or are we doing it out of pure love? What is the purity of the love? What is the motivation? What is the purity of the desire? Is it to please God? Is it to simply conform our will to God's holy will? So as you pray the Angelus, all of these reflective points center you in the day. And then the third part of the Angelus, the third, third salutation, is the declaration. And the word became flesh. In this moment, we see the prologue to John's gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and nothing that came to be, came to be without him. <clears throat> this understanding of the second person of the Trinity becomes tangible within us when we savor this understanding that God became man and was born of a woman. He didn't simply appear. He enters creation in the same way that we enter creation, and he exits creation in the same way we exit. He is born, and he dies. The totality of Catholic faith, and, and 
especially with regard to the Blessed Mother, as we see the life of Christ through her eyes. We see with a fullness and a depth the love of God only if we see it through her eyes, only if we see it with the understanding that she is giving her child no less than God is giving his child for love of us, for love of us. And then after we acknowledge in the Angelus, the Carl Pachtemest, we say, pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. What are the promises of Christ? What are the promises of Christ? Specifically, they are, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have life everlasting. Listen to what he says. It's very, very clear. He doesn't say, I am the preferred option. I am the preferred way. I'm one way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father unless he comes through me. When Jesus speaks these words, we are compelled, we are compelled to answer in the affirmative, or if we answer in the negative, then we simply step out of the flow of grace. That is the understanding of who God is, who Christ is, and who the Blessed Mother is, through whom the second person of the Trinity takes flesh. And then this leads us to the final petition of the Angelus. Now the Angelus, the formula is very, very clear. There's an acknowledgement, there's a historical acknowledgement, there's a request for intercession from the Blessed Mother, and then finally we speak to God, and we say, Pour forth we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection, through the same Christ, our Lord. The totality and depth, profundity of the theology of the Angelus is absolutely huge. It calls us three times a day at the minimum. It calls us three times a day to think, to live, to intone, to speak of who she is, of who he is, the embodiment of hope in life everlasting. You cannot separate Mary from Jesus. You cannot separate Jesus from Mary. He is flesh of her flesh, bone from bone. You can't have a relationship with the Christ and not have a relationship with his mother. So on today, on the feast day of the Theotokos, on Mary, mother of God, what is the primary, if we look at a saint, if we look at, at saints as saying, what is their primary attribute? What is the evil that they bested? What is the, 
exemplary heroic virtue they displayed. In this particular feast, what we're focusing on is Mary's conformity of will. It is her conformity to God's holy will, which is always and everywhere salvation. And so it's in this conformity of will that we become pleasing to God. And it's not because we surrender or we are beaten or we are subdued. It is out of docility. Docility perfects obedience. And we find docility in the Blessed Mother over and over again. She wants what he wants because he wants it and for no other reason. This is the hallmark of docility, which perfects obedience. Obedience is the doing of a thing. We as Catholics <clears throat> insert a, uh, a variant here that is a non-Catholic secular variant, which is, is the thought that we must, we must agree in order to obey. And we will say things like, well, if I understand, if you'll explain it to me, I will do it. This is a very Western mentality. This is a very individualistic. This is a very uh, invictus, my way understanding that if you can appeal to my reason, if I can understand it and you can appeal to my intellectual ability uh, or my intellectual acumen, then perhaps I will, um, will do what you ask. In the East, it's a much more humble, a much meeker response, which is, I will do, I will obey until I understand. Obedience has to precede full understanding. It is the, in the obedience, it is in the assent versus agreement that we find sanctity, that we find docility, that we find um, the gratia plena, plenia, the, the fullness of grace, the, the grace that is there to enable us to become pleasing to God, the actual grace which leads to the opportunity to gain sanctifying grace. Mary is full of grace. This is the salutation. This is at the center of, of Gabriel's salutation. Another way to think of it, or, or another way to interpret what's being said, actually, is hail you through whom all grace may flow, will flow, could flow. And so this language is beyond the temporal. And so Gabriel is acknowledging a an eternal reality, which is a temporal moment. So this creature, this eternal creature, this immortal creature is speaking to a mortal. Can you imagine Gabriel in the presence of she whom is his queen, queen of angels? But in this moment, his knowledge is limited to that which is God has given him to see. And 
he asked her that question. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. What kind of greeting is this? She's not fearful. She's not fearful because she's not sinful. There's no sin. There's no reason to fear. She fears no creature. Fear is the first rotten fruit of the fall. I think we must understand that Mary is a warrior queen. Mary is not fearful. Mary is not worrisome. All of those vices, all of that lack of virtue is not there because she's the perfection of all virtue. Her human faculties are untouched by sin. How do we know this? And so this is the third Marian dogma. And I'm going to touch on all four of them briefly uh, today uh, in this talk. And so the first one is Theotokos, mother of God. The second Marian dogma is perpetual virginity. This is one that we struggle with because we think that childbirth may in some ways negate virginity. Not so. I would encourage you to search out Father Ripperger's uh, discussion of virginity. It is a daughter virtue of temperance, which is the purification of all desire. Temperance is not just moderation in all things, but it's actually the purification of desire and attraction. You might think, how can we purify that to which we are attracted? Very simply through custody of the mind and the choosing to be pure. So virginity is not negated by childbirth. It's negated by the conjugal act. I'll give you a classic example is that Jesus enters the world every day through you. He enters the church at the epiclesis. The Holy Spirit quickens the flesh, the, the gifts, into the body and blood of Christ. The third person of the Trinity becomes manifest as the second person of the Trinity in the, in the precious body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then when you take communion, you take him into the world, so you exit through the door. He didn't enter through the door. He entered from above. He entered through the words. He entered through the consecration, the words of consecration at the hands of the priest. But he exits into the world. He's made manifest in the world through you. The third Marian dogma is the Immaculate Conception, meaning she who contained the very presence of God, the essence of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, must do so in a state of purity, absolute purity. So she's conceived without original sin for in a singular moment of grace, in a singular act of God, which spares her. This is done not randomly, not to someone who is um, simply selected to bear the Christ, her mother and father were holy people past the age of childbearing who were inspired by the Holy Spirit and spoken to by an angel independently. 
to engage in the conjugal act for the purpose of a blessed child, which would be given to God, which she subsequently was. We're skipping a lot of things here. I think we go back and pick up on another Marian feast, a more depth about who she is. But I would like to conclude today's program after this, with this third Marian dogma of the Immaculate Conception and urge you that now, more than any other time, don't seek her in the mystical, don't seek her in, revel in previous revelation, seek her in the Angelus. Find her and her son in the Angelus. Three times a day, let's bring the Angelus back to bear as the weapon of choice for us to be a Catholic presence in our culture and in our world. Set the alarm on your cell phone, set whatever reminder at six noon and six. And for this year, let's order our lives to this incontrovertible truth that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Angela, it's been a lovely morning here on uh, the Feast of the Theotokos. I thank you for the opportunity to be present. Do you have questions or comments? Well, I was just gonna say, um, it's so interesting, Kyle, that the first program that was recorded on WSFI was on December 8th, and it was the Angelus. <laughs> Thanks be to God. And we run it every day at 6 in the morning, 12 at noon, and 6 p.m. Thanks be to God. Yes. It was a beautiful show, Kyle. It was a beautiful show. You know, we, are, we do have a tendency to call today New Year's instead of the Feast of Mary, Mother of God, but I think, I think you changed that. <laughs> well, I, think, I thank you for the opportunity. God willing, we'll be present on these first Fridays. Um, we've got so many wonderful feasts coming up, so many really power. This is a time of year that is so powerful. We're in the um, uh, middle of the novena to the uh, presentation. Uh, candle mass which is coming up then uh, also I mean we're in the middle of the novena to the epiphany I'm sorry the epiphany on on January the 6th um, for those of you who can't go to mass or who can't ob observe the holy days and even the older holy days in the old calendar be familiar find them look them up and at least give our lady our lord and our lady 15 20 minutes of prayer on those days we can observe these holy days in our own way but we have to set them aside we have to observe them we have to acknowledge them um, if you're doing if you you are interested in doing uh, the super novenas that we that we do uh, that we pray to various Marian feast days contact Angela we'll try to make the uh, get these available to you uh, we'll figure, try to figure out a way to make some information free uh, to you through WSFI and through the Society of the Most Sorrowful Mother. Um, 
these things, uh, we, we need to have these weapons uh, out and being used. Um, we, we need to be praying these prayers and acknowledging these Marian feast days. And so the best way to do that is through Novena. And then very quickly, I'm going to tell you, why is it a Novena? <clears throat> novena means nine. It's a, Latin, it's a reference to the Latin number uh, for nine. The very first Novena was the Blessed Mother who led the apostles in prayer for the nine nights between Ascension Thursday and Pentecost Sunday. So the very first novena is that petition of the apostles led by the Blessed Mother that resulted in the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. She is depicted in many uh, title, uh, under one title and in many pieces of sacred art as queen of apostles. And in that moment, you'll see her leading them in prayer and the descent of the Holy Spirit in the form of tongues of fire upon the apostles. And so that was the first novena. All novena is built upon that principle that it is at the same time in the same location by the same people. And these are very difficult uh, things to, to hit. But what you notice is the, the more difficult, temporal difficulty, the greater the efficacy of the prayer. The more obstacles you overcome to commit yourself to a prayer cause or to, um, to a thing that, that you want to bring about a self, that has salvific value, then the greater the, the effort required on our part and so many of us I know are praying for the nation or praying for politics, for praying, but let's be, don't be caught up in the behavior of people. Let's be caught up in the disposition of their soul. Don't be caught up in, in what their corpus is doing. Be, be caught up in, in the disposition of their soul, their openness to grace, their understanding that whether it's chastisement or whether it's um, good times or bad times, whatever we may, think they may be God and his providence is allowing it thanks be to God and so it, it, it's the disposition of our will the comportment of our will to God's holy will evil militates to absurdity and I think we're seeing that in our nation today is the middle ground is falling away the middle ground is absolutely falling away so let's address this false concept of, of charity, this secular concept of charity, which says we can't offend anyone, we can't tell the truth, we can't bring up the Blessed Mother's name if someone doesn't believe that she's the mother of God. This, these are dangerous, politically correct abominations. We've got to declare who she is, who Christ is, who our Lord is, who our church is. We have to stand on the truth. We have to proclaim the Lord in these times where he is being denied. Amen, Kyle. Amen. We have a hard break until we meet again. You have been listening to WSFI 88.5 FM, Reclamation Theology. A copy of this broadcast will be made available at WSFICatholicRadio.org.